Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to abide in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Hello, my name is Paul Coulter and I'm Head of Ministry Operations in Living Leadership. This is the final episode in a five-part series exploring aspects of pastoral care. My aim is to help you have confidence in how you can ensure that your pastoral care is gospel-shaped. I'm bringing you some more thoughts about ideas that I introduced in a one-off episode in a podcast in January, and uh, they're explored in more detail in our Gospel-Shaped Pastoral Care course, which runs online between March and June. So in this series, we've been thinking about five M's of pastoral care, motivation, methods, means, margins, and mechanics. In the first episode, we thought about the importance of being motivated by the compassion of the Father and growing in that compassion in relationship with him. In the second episode, we looked to Jesus as our example for the methods of pastoral care we learnt that we need to develop loving relationships in humility and vulnerability. In the third episode, we recognise that in our means in pastoral care, we're utterly dependent on the work of the Spirit in us, his gifting and his enabling for the ministries of presence, provision, intercession and instruction, and also his work in the lives of those we care for as he transforms them towards the likeness of Christ. And in the fourth episode, we explored the margins of pastoral care. We thought a bit about how pastoral care is part of the mission of disciple making, not separate from it, not a replacement for it, but part of it. And we also talked about just how vital wise boundaries are to protect caregivers, recipients of care, and the reputation of the church and the gospel. Now, in this episode, we turn to the mechanics of pastoral care. Now, of course, I'm not talking about car mechanics or mechanical engineering here. It's a good thing because the episode would be over now. I know virtually nothing about that. Mechanics is my attempt to find an M word that relates to the way that care is structured and provided in a church. Now, pastoral care is often thought of as a ministry of individuals to individuals. And of course, one-to-one relationships are certainly an essential aspect of good care provision. But a gospel-shaped approach to pastoral care must pay attention to the church, which isn't just an add-on to the gospel. Sometimes as evangelicals, we think about it or talk about it as if that's what it is. You get saved, brought into relationship with God, and then you find a church to join. But the church is actually part of the gospel. In coming into relationship with God as Father, you come into relationship with others within the church. You become part of the body of Christ. And so the church is the context of pastoral care, just as it is the context of disciple making, of which pastoral care is part. So scripture emphasizes care in a community that's created by and shaped by the gospel. Look, for example, at Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. 
the effectiveness of pastoral care will be severely limited if it doesn't involve the whole church community and if individuals who have a leading role in it are not well supported by their church. So it's vital that we understand the biblical promise of Christian community. The gospel calls us to share life together as we celebrate God's grace. It also enables us to have high expectations of what might be in the relationships in our church because we know that the Spirit is at work in those relationships. But it also helps us to remain committed in those relationships when they fail to meet our expectations because we know that just like ourselves, the members of our church community are not yet made perfect. It's not because we benefit from being in community that we remain within it. If that was the case, we would leave when our needs are no longer met. And I'm afraid that's what happens a lot in our current cultural setting. But the reason we stay committed is because God loves the church. And he loves the people who make up the church. And we, as recipients of God's love, are indebted to love others, even when they haven't loved us well. The starting point of God's calling and purpose for the church, as well as our common identity with its members as sinners and saints, simul justice et peccator. That's essential, starting with those two realisations that God has a purpose for the church and that we are sinners and saints. That's vital as we seek to embody what it is to be the church. There'll be lots of challenges along the way. There might even need to be discipline and exclusion of people from the church, but there will always be Christ at the centre. So we could say a lot more about the nature of Christian community. I'd love to talk about that and maybe we will in a future series of podcasts. But how is a contemporary community of believers, a church today, to organise effective pastoral care? Well, I didn't give you a definitive answer about the boundaries that you need to put in place in the last episode, and I'm not going to give you a definitive answer to the structure you should put in place for pastoral care in this episode. And the reason for that is because there isn't a single one-size-fits-all answer that will work in every situation. There are differences of church size and structure, differences of church polity, differences of personnel and gifting in your churches that make it impossible for me to do that. In the Gospel-Shaped Pastoral Care course, we take some time to think about possible models of care provision in churches, and I encourage participants to review those models and to look at what happens in their own church and to suggest changes and to discuss those with one another. So that's a, a practical way to, to put into action some of the ideas I'm about to share. But in what follows, I'm going to give you three questions that I think can help you ensure that pastoral care provision is effective in your church. How you answer them will depend on your specific situation, but the questions are important. First question is, who provides pastoral care? Well, the New Testament expects all believers within a Christian community to care for each other. That's very clear 
when we look at the church in Acts 2, for example, or the commands of Paul in Ephesians 3 and other places. There are many places in the New Testament where the phrase one another is used to describe these responsibilities between believers, responsibilities that are wrapped together under the expression love one another, the command that Christ gave us to love one another as he has loved us. It's well worth doing a Bible study of those one another commands. But taken together, they they paint a picture of a community of mutual care and support. And in this sense, pastoral care is the responsibility of all believers. We're all commanded to use whatever resources we have, whatever gifts we've been given in response to the needs of our brothers and sisters. But alongside the responsibility of all believers, we can think about the sum In episode three of this series, we touched on the issue of spiritual gifting in pastoral care, and I said that some spiritual gifts are especially relevant. And most churches recognise that some people among the congregation are particularly gifted as providers of pastoral care and have a particular sense of calling to this ministry. Those People might become recognised pastoral caregivers or home group leaders or ministry coordinators, or they might simply do a lot of pastoral work uh, without a a recognised position. And as they do that, they're not trying to replace the work of the all, but to make it more effective as they do the work of the sum. There's the all and there's the sum. And then finally, the few. Christ has given a few people to the church to be its shepherds and teachers. Their job is to guide it in faithfulness to the gospel. And if we're going to talk about pastoral care, we need to recognise that the recognised shepherds of the church have a distinctive part to play. In fact, the care that they all provide and that the some provide is under their oversight. And whatever terminology our church tradition uses to describe these people, they need to be identified and recognised as elders, overseers, pastors of the church. So these then are the, the three categories of people who contribute to pastoral care. All believers in obedience to the one another commands. Some believers who are specifically gifted and called to contribute and the few who are recognised shepherds of the flock. But we need to match those three categories of people with the levels at which pastoral care can operate. I find it helpful to distinguish different kinds of caring relationships within pastoral care, which can be thought of as sitting on a scale from less intensive to more intensive. The least intensive level is the level of the loving community friendship, spiritual friendship within community. Mutual loving care as brothers and sisters in fellowship whenever life is relatively smooth. That happens all the time and we all need it. We need encouragement from one another. We need a little pick up now and again. We need to be teaching and exhorting one another. But there's a second level that kicks in whenever people face problems. That's supportive comfort. So loving community, all the time, supportive, comfort, some of the time. And that means walking with people as a supportive presence. 
But then there's a third level of hearing confession. That means helping others who have specific sin issues by hearing them share about their issues and pointing them to forgiveness and to gospel truth. And then fourthly, a fourth level is pastoral guidance. That's a more intensive level. So moving from loving community to supportive comfort to hearing confession to pastoral guidance. And in pastoral guidance, we work closely with an individual or a family or a couple over a defined and limited period of time to support and guide them in a specific area of need. And then fifthly is the most intensive level of relationship, spiritual direction. Now that term is used in different ways by different authors and in different Christian traditions. But what I mean by that is a long-term, structured, one-to-one relationship when we act as a guide for another person in which there are high levels of accountability. It's close to what we might call mentoring. It's an intense, close, committed, time-bound relationship. Now that concept of five levels of care, loving community, supportive comfort, hearing confession, pastoral guidance, and spiritual direction, can help us to clarify the responsibilities of the three categories of people, the all, the some, and the few. All believers will be involved at level one in loving community, and occasionally they'll be involved at levels two and three as needs arise. There'll be a supportive comfort to people. They may hear confession of people they're close to. But if and when that happens, when levels two and three uh, come about, the, the person who's who's doing it, who's providing comfort and is hearing confession, should work closely with the recognised shepherds of the church to ensure that the instruction they offer is consistent with biblical teaching and good, sound doctrine. And the all, the ordinary believer, when they encounter those situations, may well be wise to link that person with one of the some, the gifted believers, because they're going to carry a significant amount of the work at levels two and three, the support of comfort and hearing confession. They carry a lot of the load of pastoral care at that level, under the supervision of the recognised shepherds, the few. And the few, of course, will supervise and guide the some and oversee the all, But where they need to major is on levels four and five, pastoral guidance and spiritual direction, recognising those individuals and couples and families for whom supportive comfort and hearing confession and reminding them of the gospel is not enough, where they need more intensive working through issues. Now, that's not just going to depend on the shepherds because these levels do not replace one another. They build on one another. In other words, the recognised shepherds will still depend on the, the sum in terms of providing provision and presence with people. And on the all in terms of that mobilisation of everybody's resources to meet their needs, because these people will have complex needs, these families will we'll maybe need care over a long period of time. They need presence and provision as well as intercession and instruction. But they, the few, the recognised shepherds, have the skills and the training 
And if they don't have it, they should seek it. And they work in mutual accountability with one another or under the oversight of one another or of another shepherd to provide intensive pastoral care through pastoral guidance and spiritual direction. And it's really important that pastors recognise that involvement in pastoral care at these levels is not a distraction from their role as a teacher of the flock. Because being a teacher of the flock is not just about the ministry of the word on a Sunday or even at a midweek. Preaching and teaching in the pulpit needs to be met with the application of those gospel truths into the lives of the flock. And so pastoral guidance and spiritual direction is just a specific application in a specific relationship with a specific person of what the pastor does in preaching the word from the pulpit. Now, in a smaller church, the the pastor and elders might be able to provide all of the pastoral care that happens at levels three to five, hearing confession, pastoral guidance, and spiritual direction. Whereas level two care might be supportive comfort, might be provided spontaneously by gifted members as the needs arise, they may not need to be recognized in a particular position. But as a congregation gets larger, it becomes necessary to organize pastoral care provision better. Maybe having a pastoral care team to coordinate level two pastoral care, supportive comfort, and to ensure that levels three to five are provided where needed. And that team might be led by the pastor or by an elder or by a pastoral care coordinator who's gifted appropriately and and recognized. And if the pastor is not particularly strong in pastoral care, it's probably advisable that he or she doesn't lead that team. In an even larger congregation, even if the pastor is strong in pastoral care, but especially if they aren't, then a pastoral care worker may be appointed on a voluntary part-time or full-time basis. But those options, you need to explore those and think those through as you determine who it is in your congregation, who are the, the many, who are the all, well, that's everybody, who are the few, and who are the some. And make sure that they're serving at all five levels of pastoral care and in all the four ministries of provision, presence, uh, intercession, and instruction. The second question is, how is care accessed? I find it helpful to think of three dimensions of care provision, which can be codified or coded with the colours of a traffic light. The red light is reactive care responding to urgent needs. Urgent needs can arise in the lives of people at any time on any date. In a small congregation, the pastor might be the single point of contact in emergencies. But even if, if that's feasible, it may not be advisable. A team in pastoral care is always a good thing. The pastor must have protected rest and leave. And to have one person may encourage unhealthy dependency and it may exclude the gifts of other people that could be useful. So it's more sensible to have a rota for emergency contact, including all of those who are able and willing to be available. 
overseen by the recognised shepherds, by the few, but it can include some of the sum as well. The second light, the amber light, is proactive care, recognising, noticing when needs are arising and you need to slow down or stop. Some urgent needs, for example, a, a sudden death or a road traffic incident, arise suddenly, they can't be predicted, but others come as a culmination of a gradual development of a problem over time. For example, the death of a person who's been in prolonged terminal decline or a man who walks out of the home when his marriage has been on the rocks for some time, or a crisis of faith in someone who hasn't been engaging for some time in church community and has become entangled in habitual sin. In a healthy church community, those evolving issues should be noticed. In the gospel-shaped pastoral care course, we explore some ways that that might happen. You're going to have to work that out in your context, but once they're identified, a response needs to be made to prevent a crisis point being reached. That might mean initiating pastoral guidance or spiritual direction, or putting practical support measures in place that allow the family to function better, or assigning a gifted pastoral care provider to be the main contact person for an individual or family. Being able to mobilise those responses in a timely fashion means that you need to know who the some are and they need to be trained and resourced and they need to have capacity to do it. So in other words, you've got to make sure that there's capacity and resource that isn't just absorbed in the urgent needs, the red light issues. Otherwise, you'll hit further problems because the amber lights will become red lights. Thirdly, the green light is about building capacity in community, preventative care. And that's really the the best form of pastoral care. That's why the the few, the recognised shepherds, have a vital role to play. Because they're the ones who, who create a culture of care in the church through their teaching and by their example. They're the ones who decide how the regular activities of the church can grow believers who are mature, able to persevere, resilient in the face of challenges, and able to to help one another. That raises the question of how the word is taught and applied, of whether a disciple-making, discipleship program would be beneficial, of the role that small groups play in the growth of members and the quality and commitment of the church to corporate prayer. So the church is the context of pastoral care. But that's not to say that it's the sole provider of pastoral care. Pastoral care givers must recognise when they reach the limits of their ability to help someone in care. The first question is, who provides care? The second question is, how is care accessed? The third question is, what are the limits of church-based pastoral care? We need wisdom to recognise that someone might need help from social services or a medical professional where they have a physical or mental health need or where they have a social need to know about the charities that might support them and help them to know about the benefits that are available to them from the state. And also to recognise the limits of our ability in spiritual care, to to know 
that we can refer that person or, or, or introduce them to a more experienced pastoral caregiver or to someone in church leadership or one of the few, the recognised shepherds. And to know that professional counsellors and psychotherapists have a role to play. Above all, a wise pastoral care provider makes their limits very clear. They know that they can't do everything and they know how to depend on others when they need to. And they avoid giving the impression that they're competent in areas in which they have no training or supervision. Now, just mentioning counselling in episode four of the series, I explained that pastoral care is different from counselling as it's commonly understood because it has the explicit aim of helping others towards Christ-likeness and because pastoral relationships are different from the contract between a counsellor and a client. But I'm not saying that counselling is unhelpful. The more formal relationship that a counsellor has with a client may be hugely beneficial for people who have already received pastoral care but who continue to struggle with an issue in their thinking. A fresh and slightly more distant pair of eyes and ears can help towards understanding. And the journey that counselling takes a person on can really help to create a sense of movement towards change. What I am saying, though, is that pastoral caregivers need to realise that approaches to counselling vary greatly. And even the label Christian counselling is not a safeguard because it may simply mean that a counsellor is a Christian rather than indicating that their approach derives from the gospel. The Gospel-Shaped Pastoral Care course explains some of the predominant schools of psychotherapy and the various approaches to counselling. And that knowledge can help pastors identify the counsellors that they have confidence in who will complement rather than undermining gospel-shaped pastoral care. But what I'm really saying here in this episode is, is that, first of all, we need to figure out who provides care, the role of the all, the some and the few in the five different levels of pastoral care. We need to think about how care is accessed so that reactive care, the red light issues, proactive care, the amber light, and preventative care, the green light, are all provided, that we're not driven by the tyranny of the urgent, but we're making sure that we're building people into resilient disciples of Christ. But we need to also know the limits of pastoral care in the church, and every pastoral caregiver would do well to build up a list of people they can refer the person to, service providers, to act within a team and accountability, wise, more experienced caregivers, and to know what counsellors they would refer someone when they need the help of a counsellor. Now, I hope that this little series of five M's of pastoral care has whet your appetite, that you might consider joining us on our pastoral care course, but that it's also helpful in itself as you reflect on pastoral care where you are. I'm praying for you as you listen to this. And I want to pray for you as we close the series. Father God, we thank you for the church, which is your family. Help all people in our churches to love one another with brotherly love. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the church, which is your body. 
Enable those who are your under-shepherds in the church to lead in a way that reflects your shepherd heart for your people and points them to you. Holy Spirit, we thank you that the church is the temple in which you dwell. May those whose gifts are especially suited to pastoral care find appropriate ways to use the gifts you give for the good of others in your strength. And for your name's sake we pray. Amen. If you want to explore these issues further and develop your heart, skills and wisdom for pastoral care, we'd love to welcome you into our gospel-shaped pastoral care course, which is delivered online on Monday mornings from March to June. To find out more and to register for the next run of the course, please visit livingleadership.org slash pastoral care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope that what we've considered today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you were encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving a review on your podcast app to help others find us. If you want to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media platform at Living Leaders or visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll also find more support and resources to help you abide in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. God bless.